right, man. Thrilled that you are here. Uh, let me uh, brag on my wife for a minute, if you would. Um, we've been married 30 years, and one of the things not growing up with uh, sisters is never understood uh, how uh, one person can make the house just like just perfect. I, I not not having any kind of interior design uh, thoughts. The way even from our first house, our first house was actually part of a triplex in Fort Worth, Texas. It was 450 square feet of seminary housing. But even right then, I was like, man, I never would have put, you know, like that lamp next to that bird next to that shelf next to that, you know, and, and it's like, I'm always amazed. Now, I did make a few rookie mistakes early is when I'd come home and like the sofa was in a different place with 400 square feet, there wasn't a lot of room to push the sofa around. But when you did that, I was like, initially the rookie mistake was, what happened? That's a bad plan. It's a bad plan. What I've learned to say is that's awesome. That is great. And one of the things that's been awesome in 30 years is somehow she just knows how to put stuff together that I never could have seen together, but when she puts it together, it's like, that looks amazing. That, I, I, I just, and so now it's like just default. It's like, do what you want to with it because I can't see it, but she can see it. But then about 10 years ago, I realized that there was like a cheat code in interior design, and the cheat code is called HGTV, all right? So I didn't even, I mean, 10 years ago, I didn't even know what, it's ESPN and the other ones, but then HGTV came on. And then if you want to, you know, it's like, you know, she's always super busy, but when she was going to watch, she's like watching HGTV and all these awesome ideas. And I'm like, that's where she got that, or that's where she got that, or she came up this on her own. But as I watched a few of those, you know, I was like, oh, the ones in Waco, I know, I knew those people. They got a ton of shows, flip and flop, whatever that stuff is. But the one that came to mind this week was one called uh, House Hunters, all right? Now, House Hunters, as you probably may, it's kind of what the word says, are people that are looking for a house, all right? They, they follow people who are searching for a place to live, and when they go to find a new home, uh, you know what they do? They look exclusively either at what's inside the house or what's outside the house. I mean, they'll go inside the house like, man, is that granite countertops or what kind of flooring does this have? Or, you know, hey, is the basement or whatever? And then every once in a while, they'll even go outside the house and talk about, you know, this guy's a nice back porch or what about this foundation and all this kind of stuff. I've yet to see an episode where they ask the question, what are the neighbors like? What are the neighbors like? I mean, is the neighbor next to me, are they crazy? Or does the, does the other person, do they mow their grass? Or what's the HOA like? I, I've not heard that before. And yet in the, I guess, four houses in the last 20 some odd years Lori and I have been in, we would both say that to a large degree, the amount that we've actually enjoyed the house is contingent in a huge part much more than countertops or flooring would be on the quality and the relationship quality of the people who live right around us. All that to say, when we are embarking right now on what has been in some ways eight months in the making and in some ways 10 years in the making, because here's what we did. In the last decade, we've seen God do some great stuff at our church. And one of the things he's done is he's focused us on what we're to be about. We're to be about making disciples for the glory of God who reach up, reach in, reach out. That's what we do. We want to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus who reach up, reach in, reach out. Now, if you were to like squeeze all that down, concentrate, what that's basically saying is we're to love God and we're to love people. What else are we supposed to do? We want to love God passionately and love people deeply. There's a theologian, a seminary grad about 2,000 years ago, he asked Jesus, he said, Jesus, if you were to take the first half of this whole book, if you were to take the whole Old Testament, how would you say, I mean, what is the greatest commandment? 613 commands, what's, the, what's number one? What's numero uno? And what he says is, he actually says two. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. He says, the one, love God, if you love God passionately, then loving your neighbor is going to flow through your life consistently. Now, what we're going to do over the next six weeks are there's some, there's a handful of organizational things we're going to do where thousands of people will go, for example, we're going to bless a thousand high needs children. We'll tell you about those different things. 
We're going to try to bless our community in a couple weeks with the fall festival out there at the Asheville Mall. Okay, we're going to do some of those big ones. So some of them are big organizational things, but there's going to be hundreds, if not thousands, of small organic things about your neighbors. Because if we talk about love your neighbor, some of it is going to be kind of metaphorical like the one we see today. The neighbors who God puts in front of you, who's in need, who God puts in front of you in WNC or even beyond. And a lot of times, though, it's not just a metaphor. It's actually your actual physical neighbors, the ones that you see all the time. And we're going to try to give you some ideas about that. Now, I want to start off the emphasis by looking at a parable that, while well-known, is greatly misunderstood. Many people look at this parable and they actually miss the entire point. They actually believe it teaches the opposite of what it actually teaches. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to work through this text. I'm going to give you a bunch of practical stuff. But in the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at some things about how do we do that. Because, again, God has blessed us in a lot of ways in the last decade. Much of what we're going to be looking at the next six weeks, to some degree, is at least half of the hopes and dreams we have for what God wants to do in our next decade together. Okay? Because bottom line is people in WNC, people in Ecuador, who we work with Compassion, they don't really care. Oh, Biltmore's this and Biltmore's that and fastest growing this and fastest growing. They don't care. The question is, are we going to be the most loving? Or are we going to actually be God's demonstration community where we live, work, and play? That's the question. And what's fun is, as we do that, it actually comes back around. We're blessed to be a blessing, and then we get blessed again to be a blessing. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me, uh, let me set this thing up. I gotta do the, co- this, I'm gonna spend an inordinate amount of time on the context of this story before we even get to the story, because if we don't, number one, it's just gonna be a fad, and number two, we're gonna actually misunderstand the whole story. So let me, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It doesn't get to the story till about verse 30, so let me set this thing up. Here's where it starts off. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So a couple of things right there. First of all, when you see lawyer, don't think, you know, ambulance chasing guy that does commercials on television. That's not, that's not what we're talking about here. And a lawyer back then, he's talking about a theologian. He's talking about somebody who knew the law really, really good, knew all those 613 commands. And then all the stuff they put on top of that, this guy was an expert theologian, but it says he stood up and he put him to the test. So in some ways, he, was, he, had a, he had an outward sign of respect, but inward, he's trying to trap him, which is always a very bad plan, very poor plan to try to actually trap Jesus when he can read your thoughts. So he, he stands up, and he's, in some ways, he's a picture of religion. He wants to look good on the outside, but have no heart change. He wants to look good on the outside and go, hey, respect me, and I'm showing you respect, but on the inside, nothing at all has changed. But he asks a question. Now, the question is great. Greatest question is the most important question you can ask. It's a great question, but it's got a faulty construct. Here's the question. The question is, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a great question. What do I need to do to go to heaven? What do I need to do to go to heaven? So again, great question. Most important question. You need to be able to answer that question. But the fact of the matter is, It's a faulty construct because he says, what shall I do? Now, by saying, what shall I do? He is showing what virtually the mainstream answer is to the question. And that is, what have I got to do? Christianity is actually, there's two world religions. I know you're going to say there's five or six, but there's really two. Okay. One is what I need to do. And one is what God has already done. The gospel is not about what you do. The gospel is about what God has done in Jesus, what he has declared, the victory, the announcement. It is finished when he died on the cross. All you've got to do is receive it as a gift. That is the gospel of what Jesus has done. All the other ones are virtually saying the same thing with different details. Do I have to meditate? Do I have to do the five pillars? Do I have to uh, go to Mecca? Do I have to obey the law? Do I have to master the eightfold path? Whatever I've got to do. Even today, you've got some what I would just call crossless or Christless versions of Christianity that basically say, just be a good person like Jesus was. Jesus taught us to love people, and that's, that's not the gospel, okay? The gospel is not love your neighbor. Love your neighbor is an outflow of the gospel, the fact that Jesus loved us first, and if we love God deeply, then he will transform our lives greatly. That's when we're talking about the way it's supposed to work. So when he asked this question again, good question, uh, just bad understanding. So verse 26, so he, just, he said to him, 
Well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? So he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he's talking to a guy that's a preeminent theologian that knows the whole Old Testament. And so he actually doesn't ever answer his question. You see this a lot. Jesus will have somebody come up and ask him a question, and he never answers the question. What he does is he answers the question with a question, so the guy will question himself. So he's trying to think. I want you to see the bigger point. And so he says, what is written in the law? What's already there? What have you already seen? How do you read it? And so here's what he says. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, the only place I can find where Jesus, where this is actually putting these two commands together is when a, the one I mentioned earlier, when an attorney come up to him and said, hey, what is the greatest commandment? And he put these things, to, these two together. So what he's doing is he's taking an Old Testament, or he's taking a text out of Deuteronomy 6 called the Shema, and he's going to Deuteronomy 19 about love your neighbor, and he's squishing the two together. And so I don't know if the lawyer overheard Jesus telling the other lawyer or not, or if he just said, hey, this is kind of the summation of all the commands, which is what it is. You understand that the Ten Commandments are, set, are divided into two categories, right? You look at the first part of the Ten Commandments, and it's all about how do you love God? How do you love God? How do you love God? You look at the back half of the Ten Commandments, it's about how do I love my neighbor? Okay? I won't covet. I won't commit adultery. I won't steal. I won't murder. That's about loving your neighbor. The first part's about loving God. So whichever one he was trying to do, that is what he said. And so it's funny. And again, I don't know if Jesus is being sarcastic in this next answer. I kind of hope he is because I would have less to answer for in heaven if he's actually being sarcastic. So whether he's being sarcastic or whether he's just trying to put out mission impossible, check out what he says in verse 28. Here's what he says. And he said to him, remember, he's just said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And then he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, let's just kind of put it out on the floor. That is a pretty big do, wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you say it's pretty, that's pretty far up there to say, is that all? All I got to do is love God supremely. So let's just take a little quiz, see how you're doing. Uh, he says, love God with all of your heart. Would you be able to say that in the last week you have loved God supremely every minute of every day? Just, I mean, loved him. He was preeminent in your love, in your affections, in your passion. That the last week, that is, I have loved God supremely. How about the last month? How about the last year? Because he says, oh, how about the rest of your years? He says, love God with all your soul, that you care about pleasing him more than anybody else, all right? More than your boyfriend, more than, more than your boss. I want to please God. Or how about this? Love God with all your mind, that your mind always, 100% of the time, turns to him, thinks godly thoughts. It's godly agenda. I want his agenda over mine. All right, can I just have a confession? Love God with all your mind. I fail in like three and a half minutes in I-26, all right? In three and a half minutes on I-26 at the wrong time of day, I am already not loving God with all of my mind, and I'm certainly not loving my neighbor as myself, all right? Nothing about that makes me go, oh, bless his heart. Nothing makes me say that, all right? Nothing. And when I'm on a mountain road in a one-lane road and you can't get around them and they're going 35 and it's a 45 or a 55-mile-an-hour speed zone, nothing in me says, you know what, Bruce, you ought to just slow down like they are. You know, just slow your life down and love God more. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not even thinking bless. I'm blessing, but I'm not blessing their heart at all. That's, and so I'm not loving God in my mind at all. And so we get to this whole idea, and he says, and, you know, love everybody else as much as yourself. How's that? Who would say today, you know, that's, that's kind of how my week's gone, all right? That's all I've done all week. I've loved God with all of my heart, all of my soul, total, totally affectionate toward him. He's my, he's my whole thing. And not only that, I've actually put other people ahead of myself every time, all the time, each time. It's always been that way. I'm looking at somebody else's needs. I'm making somebody else happy, never thinking about myself. How's that going for you? Anybody good? Uh, no. One of the things we've talked about here is the law was never meant to lead you to be saved. It was actually meant to show you that you can't save yourself, all right? It was a mirror to show us our sin. Once we come to Christ and see our sin and embrace Christ by faith, then it becomes a, here's a map, here's a road on how to have a fruitful and fulfilling Christian life. But on the front end, it's never, the Ten Commandments was never meant to save you. 
was never meant, it was meant to be a mirror to say, I can't save myself at all. I mean, heck, folks, you talk about keeping God's commands, we can't even keep our own commands. You understand that, right? You understand nobody has lied to you more than you have lied to you? Okay, you're all looking at me like, I, I don't understand. Uh, I, don't under- I don't understand. Okay, how many have made a New Year's resolution and not kept it? Just put your hands up. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's like, how many have ever just said, you know what, I will never do that. I will never raise my voice to my wife. I will never go there again. I will never do this. And it's like three months later and we're like, fail, 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 fail. Why? Because not only can we not keep our own commands and our own intentions and keep our own will, we can't, even, we can't keep God's command. So what's the Bible say? The Bible says that, you know what, Jesus is the one that we need. It's to lead us to Jesus. It's like an exam that's pass-fail. It's a pass-fail exam. To pass it, you've got you to do 100%. Not 90%, not 80%, 100%. And the idea is we all fail. And so what we need is we, we need somebody who aced the test. We need somebody who passed the test 100%, who loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, who always loved his neighbor as himself. And so the gospel is that Jesus actually takes, takes the test, makes 100%, and then the great exchange, the great exchange is he takes my F and takes it on himself and then gives to me his A+, plus, his 100%. That's what the Bible's talking about when it says, 2 Corinthians 5, it made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. It's like, you know what? He gave me his A plus, I gave him my F, that is the great exchange. And so you're like, why are you hammering this home? Let's just get to the story, we like the story. The reason is, is if you don't anchor love your neighbor in the gospel, there's no way that you are gonna consistently, we will increasingly love them. It will simply be a fad. If all it is is about guilt, guilt's going to last about a week. I, mean, I can make you feel guilty. All right? I can make us all feel guilty. I can put up pictures up here and show you pictures of poor kids in Ecuador. And it's like, man, you got nine coach purses in your closet. You stink as a human. I mean, I can make us all feel guilty. But if all it is is guilt, that lasts like a week. If all it is is a religion... Fault is religious, like, I got to do this because, man, God is kind of expecting me to do it, and he's been good, so I'm going to kind of do some stuff so he's happy with me. If you, if you tease that whole idea of religion out about doing stuff so that God will then accept you, you tease that out far enough, what you're really doing, what you're really doing is you're loving you. Because if I'm loving other people so that God will be good to me, that means the reason I'm actually loving people is because I'm loving me because I want God to love me. And that ends up lasting. All you end up there was just bitter, cranky old so-called Christians that don't love anybody and, and definitely don't love God. So here's what we're doing. If it's grounded in the gospel, if you remember how gracious and compassionate Jesus was to us on the cross and that every person that we'll see he loves ferociously, then guess what? Then that'll last a long, long, long time. It'll be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And think of it this way. Who's, who's, who's like lead-off batter in the fruit of the Spirit? Anybody? Who's lead-off batter? Come on, folks. Galatians 5. Who is the lead-off batter? What's the number one thing in the fruit of the Spirit? Love. That is. So what happens is if we're anchored in the gospel and the Holy Spirit is empowering it, then we actually consistently, increasingly can love people. We can even love people who are very hard to love, which we'll get on in the next week or so. So all that being said, verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That word justify is a great word. It's a theological word. We spend a lot of time on it. Justify. There's a lot of fancy definitions. The easiest definition is just to remember justification means just as if I've never sinned. You have sinned, but in the gospel, Jesus has taken your sin, and Romans calls it, or theologians call what Romans described as imputed righteousness. It means he gave you his righteousness, so when God looks at you, he sees Jesus and his perfection, because you're what? In Christ. That's the gospel. All right, so you got two ways you can justify yourself. You can either self-justify, or you can God-justify. This guy wants to self-justify. Self-justification means I'm going to justify myself in front of God by doing certain stuff, Mm, this is what I've done, this is my resume, but real justification, gospel justification is I'm justified because of what Jesus has already done. 
And in this case, the guy's feeling the squeeze of the commandment to love God with everything you've got and love your neighbors yourself. And so he tries to limit the love of God by saying, well, who is my neighbor, okay? Who's my neighbor? No, it's not them and it's not them. Let's bring this in so it's manageable so I can self-justify. And then that's the context of what Jesus says in verse 30. Here's the story. So Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. There's a big, I think it's like 3,000 foot elevation drop in this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him. Clothes were very expensive back then. You might have one, two, maybe three pair if you were rich, three pair of clothes and so clothes were very valuable. He stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Verse 31, now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so we'll get to, if you were a Jew in that audience 2,000 years ago, and the first guy up was the priest, it was like, bum, 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 along. that's the hero. The hero's going to save the day. And it says he just passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, a Levite was like a JV priest, okay? So you had the priests that were from the tribe of Aaron, and then you have the Levites who were like the JV priest, and they were from the tribe of Levi. Okay, they were from the tribe of Levi, and they were like the custodians of the, the temple, all right? They're the ones that took care of the operations kind of stuff. And so this guy, this guy's kind of, the Levite would look up to the priest. So maybe he saw the way the priest acted, we don't know. But likewise, the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Same phrase. But a Samaritan, if you were a Jew back then, you would have booed at this point. But a Samaritan, man, man, it would have been like those Yankee fans on my Astros. That's what it would have been like. But a Samaritan, yeah, we hate you. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. I'll show you this word here in a few minutes. Compassion means it literally means from the gut. It means, it's actually the Greek word splagma. That's great to say, isn't it? Kind of gets the guttural, splagma. It's like, tell your neighbor. I'm just kidding, don't do that. All right, but splagma is onomatopoeia. It's, it sounds like what it's trying to describe, and it's from the gut. It means that hurt me. It's like a gut punch. It's like, it's like somebody punches me in the gut. Matthew 9, it says this of Jesus. It says, Jesus looked out and he said that they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then it said he had compassion, splagma. He had, it hurt him in his gut. He had an emotional, visceral response. How long since, it, how long since you've seen somebody less fortunate than you when you actually had a visceral, emotional response? How long has it been since you saw your compassion child? It's like, man, I just, I, I, I can't help but to do this. That's, that's compassion. That's splagma. Next verse, it says this. So with that compassion, he did something. That's why it's called love does. He did something. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and it took, he took care of him. And what you're gonna see is this guy didn't just, he, here's a $20 bill, I'm gone. This guy took care of him and then made sure his needs were taken care of for a while. He actually opens up a line of credit for him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them. That's basically two weeks, all right? The guy's half dead. He's going to be here for a couple weeks. Gave him a couple weeks, paid it ahead of time, and then gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And the reason was, he said, the guy woke up at the end of two weeks and the guy never came back and the guy couldn't pay it. The guy would end up having to be a slave to the innkeeper to work off what he owed. So he's trying to not just take care of his immediate need, he's trying to take care of his eventual need as well. Which of these three do you think? So that's the end of the story. So here's what he says. Which of these three do you think, talking back to the attorney, talking back to the lawyer, talking back to the theologian who's got all these 613 commands memorized, he's like, all right, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? This is like cookie on the lowest shelf kind of question to the attorney. Again, he's trying to get the guy to self-actualize what the bigger issue was. And he doesn't really even get it then. Here's what he says. He said, the one who showed him mercy. He hates the Samaritan so bad. Instead of just saying the Samaritan, he's like, uh, number three, number three, the third one. 
Well, which one is that? It's, it starts with an S. That's, he doesn't even want to say it. And Jesus said to him, you go. You is in the emphatic position. You go. That's the whole point. You go. You go. You just said, you made it very obvious the Samaritan is the guy. You go now. You go and do likewise. So what does this look like for us? What about us as a, uh, as a church and as families? What does this look like? Here's what it is. This, by the way, this is the most un- misunderstood parable. Here's the way a lot of people read this whole story. That they read it, it's like, you know, be a good Samaritan, God will be happy, and I'll get into the kingdom. That's the way they read it. Be a good Samaritan. Go help people out. Be a good person. Have good morals. Cut your grass, and you'll get into the kingdom. That's what religion says. Religion says, if I will do the right activity, then God will change my identity. That is not the way that the gospel actually motivates us loving our neighbor. The gospel says, by the grace of Jesus, by his death on the cross, when you repent and embrace him, he changes your identity. All of a sudden, you go from being an enemy of God to a friend of God. All of a sudden, you go from being estranged from God, and now you're his daughter, now you're his son. Then he changes you from the inside out. See, the identity changes, then the activity changes. Now, we'll see this in a few weeks. Some of you are like, I'm not sure I'm saved. I'm not sure I'm saved. How do I know if I'm saved or not? We're going to actually look at that, that this is one of the indicators that says, is there anything vertical going on? And if there's something horizontal going on, it's a good indication there is something vertical also going on. But you're like, I need, some, I need something to hold on. I don't even know how to love my neighbor. What am I supposed to do? Go down to the drum circle and preach? And Okay, okay. Let's, let's look at the story. Here's, let me give you a few. This is the first one that jumped out. See the opportunity in the ordinary. See the opportunity in the ordinary stuff of life. Do you see verse 30? It said he was going down a road between Jerusalem and Jericho. Loved ones, this is like an ordinary road. This wasn't some special road. This wasn't the yellow brick road, okay? This wasn't even the Roman road. This was just a road. This was like Hendersonville Road. That's what it was. It was like I, right now like I-26, but it was like, it was like Hendersonville Road, all right? It was just a normal road that you would take to get from one place to the other. In their case, it was to get from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jericho back to Jerusalem. It was just an ordinary road. So let me ask you this question. What travel patterns... What travel patterns, what places do we take, do we go every single day or every single week? What coffee shop do you drink at? What restaurant do you eat at? What school do you learn at? What business do you work at? What neighborhood do you live at? You don't have to get on a plane and go on a mission trip When you realize oftentimes we miss the divine opportunities, literally, that God puts in front of us all the time. People that we see all the time. Be like, how do I miss that? How do I miss that? The way we miss it, I just put down the word olfactory fatigue. You're like, well, thank you. That clears everything up. Here's what olfactory fatigue is. Uh, The easier way to think of it is nose blindness. Okay? What that, you're like, well, that, okay. Um, Here's... Have you ever gotten in a car? Some of you all have teenagers as, uh, or had teenagers. That is the most jarring smell that really I think is known to man. When, when there is a teenager, maybe he hadn't taken a shower in a day or two and maybe he worked out, took his socks off in the car and then left them in there, and you didn't know they were in there, but they stayed in there overnight, so they kind of got mildew and nasty, and then it sat in there. Maybe you were out in the hot sun. Maybe you didn't even look at it the whole weekend, and then you got in that car on Monday morning, like, good gracious, Lord, help me. And you're like, what is that? You're like, it's a, it is, that's the smell. But what do you do? What do you do? You got to go to work, so you get in, you're going, you're like, Febreze, you're doing something, but isn't it amazing that, you know, like, uh, Five minutes down the road, you're on the phone, and you're like, can't, you just barely even, can't even smell that. Can you? you know there's actually a physiological reason for that? They say that your body actually ignores that smell so that your whole nervous system doesn't freak out. Actually, it's got to be true. I read it on Wikipedia. So, I mean, that's, that is what it said. The idea is you got used to a smell that at one point jarred you, 
But after being exposed to it for a while, it's just, it's just, it's, you know, it's whatever. It's just a smell. That's what happens oftentimes where we live and work and play. Now think about it. Maybe when you first got on that job or maybe when that new person came to work at your office and you're there and you're fired up, maybe you just heard a message about evangelism or God was doing something great in your life and you realize that, and you kind of overheard her talking on the phone and she was talking about, you could tell she was going through a separation and her husband had left her and she's brand new to the city. She's not sure what she's gonna do with her kids and you're like, oh Jesus, please, and you're over there praying, God, help me, help me, help me have a chance to talk to her and you're praying for her and you're praying. Maybe you get your kids around, you're praying for her for like the first week, you're praying and praying and praying. And that's like six months ago. And what's now? Now it's just, just Karen. That's all it is. Just Karen. What happened? You got, you got used to it. You got used to it. Karen's still there. Karen's now a single mom. Karen's still freaking out about what she's going to do with her three kids. But we're over here with nose blindness. We don't even know because we're looking. And you know when we do see it? We do see it when we're intentional. Some of you have been on short-term mission trips. You've gone to Ecuador, you've gone to the Dominican with us, or you've gone maybe on a you know, major league, going over to Asia or whatever. Let me just say this. If you've ever been on there, you know what this is. You are like hypersensitive. You are like all about Jesus all the time. You're just fired up. You pray more than you ever did. You're thinking, you're, you're like share, trying to share Christ with a taxi driver. You're doing all that stuff. You're in the airport. Hey, can I tell you a little bit about Jesus? You're just all that all the time. Listen to me. Just go on a mission trip every day. Just go on a mission trip every day. See your drive to your work or your coffee shop. Just say, God, would you use me today? In my D group, I'm, we're going through the book of Romans, okay? I've been going through it for a while. We kind of just launched our D group. And it's like, what do you want to do now? It's like, well, let's go back through Romans. I didn't get past verse 2. And here's what it says. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. And God says, like, stop. Stay there for a while. It says a servant, a doulos of Christ Jesus. What does that mean? that mean? That means, Bruce, that you sign at the start of the day, I'm a servant of Jesus, and so your agenda needs to be my agenda. That's very hard for a type, a type A, choleric, eight on the Enneagram, very hard. Because I thrive on structure and agenda. I'm telling you what, it is a good day if I mark off everything in the phone. I mean, it's just a good godly day. But you know what I found out is this. What I used to look at and still do to my shame oftentimes, what I see as interruptions are oftentimes appointments. What I see as interruptions to my agenda are actually appointments that God has sent that are part of his agenda. See, here's what happens is you got somebody over here, you got Karen over here, and she's like, God help me, I'm new in this city. God help me, I'm new in this city. I don't know what I can do with my kids. God help me. God's up in heaven going, okay, I will help you. And then he sends you to be the answer to the prayer. And so it's right there. And so one of the things that would be great to do is just in the next six weeks, just say, I want to just start off the day just saying, God, I want to see the opportunity in, in the ordinary. I'm not saying it's going to be easy because you've got to do this too. You've got to make a decision you were going to walk toward the mess. God sort of brought something out of the story, the first two guys, because usually I'm really hard on the priest. Usually we all are. Like the priest, he's the celebrity pastor who stepped over the wounded victim to make it to Chick-fil-A. You know, I mean, it's like, he's terrible. Give, give, the, give the guy a little bit, of, little bit of grace, just a little bit, Okay. Number one, it was a very dangerous road, all right? So you typically didn't stop on this road. They actually called it the path of blood because it's got all these rock outcroppings where robbers could stay. So it was a danger. It was like the bad, 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 bad part of town. It was like roll up your windows and lock your doors kind of drive. But even a bigger way, this guy is going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. You know who lives in Jericho? A bunch of priests do. That's who lives in Jericho. Jericho's like... Colorado Springs, Colorado. That's where, all, that's where all the priests lived. He had obviously been up in Jerusalem at worship. Back then, he's up at Jerusalem, and part of what he was doing up there is getting ritually clean, going through all this stuff that took days and days and days, get the red heifer and kill the red heifer, and all this kind of stuff. 
so that he could then go back to Jericho and do his religious duties. If he'd have stopped and helped the guy, it wasn't like a one-hour detour. The law back then said if you got within, I think it says within six feet or ten feet of a dead person, he would, he would then be ritualistically unclean and had to go back to Jerusalem, find another red heifer, find all this stuff. It's probably like a seven to 14 day delay in his trip if he stops to help. Apparently the Levite, again, who's the JV priest, he doesn't know any better. Maybe he's just watching his leader. He looks down the road, sees his leader do the same thing, which is if you're a leader, you gotta be careful because people are always watching. He said, if my leader's going to do that, if my leader's going to bypass, same phrase, he just passed by on the other side, then uh, maybe that's the right thing to do. I got to get back to do my, I got to go get back to do my, my stuff. And by the way, if your religion is an excuse for not helping people who Jesus died for, we're doing it wrong. Okay. If we use our religion as an excuse for not helping people who Jesus died for, we're doing it wrong. We are doing it wrong. And let me be clear, the biggest temptation at a church like ours, when I say a church like ours, we're like strong Bible, strong Bible, strong discipleship, strong discipleship. The biggest temptation is the temptation of the priest and of the Levite. Because there's a lot of great stuff we do. Read your Bible, tithe your money, go to Connect Group, volunteer at this, and those are good things. But if we're not careful, we do all of that good stuff and we don't ever pour our lives out for someone and therefore we don't do the best stuff. Matthew 23, 23, just jot it down. I'm sure you've got it memorized already, but just jot that down. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says this. He says, you guys tithe off the mint and the cumin and the dill. You're like, what is, what are you talking about? He's saying, you guys are so particular about tithing off your spice rack. I'm just going to tell you right now, that's a good church member right there. I was like, at 9.9%, we got to make sure, hey, did you tithe off the clove? Did you, you know, that is like very, 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 but it says this, it says, do that. Jesus says, do that. You did good in that, but you neglected the weight of your matters, things like mercy and faithfulness. You've neglected those things. And so loved ones. The guy in the story that you got to see is the Samaritan. The Samaritan, and, and we've gone over this a bunch about, oh, it seems like everything in the last quarter we've seen, we've seen a Samaritan. If you hadn't been here, here's a quick synopsis. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. Samaritans were called half-breeds by the Jews. Why? Because the Jew, when the Assyrians took over the Jews, they intermarried, and that was the people then known as the Samaritans, all right? And so they had this history-long clash, and they hated each other, all right? The Jews wouldn't even share. If they shared a piece of bread with a, with a Samaritan, that would be the same as like, you know, eating a whole pig, which was like the, the most, you know, god-awful thing a Jew could do. But Samaritans, by the way, were not like angels. Sometimes we paint them as angels. Samaritans were not angels. Samaritans, uh, they made fun of the Jews. They said, we were worshiping in the right mountain. Secular authors show that some kind of, it actually kind of got a respect and it's kind of funny, but the, there were some Samaritans, they would take these catapults and they would put pigs in the catapults and sling them over the walls to land on the altar to like mess up the worship of the Jews. I was like, man, that's respect right there. I mean, that's, that's good. No matter what that's anyway, sorry. Uh, but they hated, they hated each other. But here's, here's the word I want to go back to. Okay. It says the Samaritan had splagma. Just, I mean, we didn't do this in the other ones because it goes to other campuses. This one doesn't. Just look ahead. Don't look at your neighbor. It'll just be good. It'll kind of get some breakfast out. All right, so just look ahead and just go, splagma. Come on, do it for him. <laughs> Somebody's here going, first visitor's like, this place is creepy. All right, this place is creepy. That's, that's what it sounds like, splagma, all right? When you did it, you kind of get that guttural sound. That's the picture. It's like from the gut, he had compassion. He saw something and it hurt. He saw something and it hurt. Now, compassion is great. Compassion is an awesome starting point. But what's better is if compassion is then unified and joined with the gospel, 
then it actually lasts a long time. Then it's not six weeks. Then it's a lifestyle, right? Then it's not just a bunch of cool projects and a thousand kids. Then it's a movement that changes a region, okay? What happens is you pair it with the gospel, and then you see people, and it hurts, but the reason you hurt is because why? Because you understand Jesus had compassion for you. And when Jesus had compassion and showed you mercy, it then translates into you showing compassion and mercy for other people. So it's really not your compassion. It's Jesus's compassion that is driving your compassion, and that can last. And so the whole idea is this. Uh, It says he went to him. He went to him. He went to him. He went to him. We're learning as a church. By the way, you can't do ministry unless you walk toward the mess. It says he walked to him. It's like one step. Did you notice that? It's like, you know how that one step made that huge difference? Like the priest and Levite, they took one step this way. And, but then the Samaritan, it says he walked toward him. And some of you are already resisting because you know what that one step's going to be over the next six weeks and you don't even like it already. That one step might be to show some mercy to, you know, an estranged parent. That one step might be to kind of maybe sacrifice something so that you can then take care of a underprivileged child here. And you're like, well, I, I got to get the new wedge. Got to get, Or I can help a child that doesn't have three square meals. A lot of us, though, we're just scared because you're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And, and the guy could have thought that. He could have said, I'm not an EMT. I'm not a doctor, I'm not a paramedic. What am I supposed to do? He could have done that. If you've, done, if you've walked into the mess, let me go ahead and tell you, you're going to feel overwhelmed at times. You're not going to feel, quote, unquote, qualified. You're not going to feel qualified when you walk into the mess. But don't underestimate the fact you're just loving somebody. Three times in the last 10 days, we've had situations here at the church that the only thing I knew how to say I've been doing this a long time. The only thing I knew to say is, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry this happened. I love you. Lori and I will be praying for you. I'm just so sorry. I was talking to a connect group in between services because one of the tragedies was in their connect group. And I'm like, I don't know what to say besides I'm sorry. I'm grateful that you guys are the hands and feet in the way you've done a great job. But don't underestimate. Like, I don't know. I'm not qualified. We're not qualified. When I was a 16-year-old and my dad died of a heart attack in the middle of the night, wake up, ambulances all around. The only person that I remember, the only, I know there was a bunch of people doing a bunch of nice stuff, but the only thing I remember is the Christian guy from across the street whose name was Wade. He came across. He came into my room. He sat there. And I don't remember a word he said. All I do is here we are 30-some-odd whatever years later, and I remember that. So you got to walk toward the mess. It's not cheap. It's not easy. It's going to cost. The guy risked a lot. He risked getting jumped. He put two weeks to the innkeeper. But here's, here's, the, here's the magic. The magic is we live in a polarized society right now. I mean, I hope you know that, right? We live in a very polarized society. And as bad as it is, it's like, these people hate these people, and this person said this, and it's like, it's just it's fight, fight, fight. What an awesome platform for the church of Jesus to step into and say, you know what? We don't look like you. We don't believe like you. We don't even act like you or live like you, but we love you, and God loves you. What a phenomenal platform for the church to come in and do that. Galatians 6 says this, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. When's the last time you actually bore somebody else's burden that you said, you know what, I've got to take this on, this extra load that she's going through right now, and if I take that on, it's going to cost me something. It's going to cost me time. And let me be clear, I am going to ask you to figure out a way to create a little bit of margin in our lives. Some of this stuff is going to take some margin. Like, I can't do it, I'm too busy. I go to ballet, to baseball, to soccer, to blah, 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 blah. Everybody is that way. It's interesting, though, that in the same chapter in the Old Testament that says, love your neighbor as yourself, there was this practice that he put in on that said, make sure when you do an agrarian society, make sure that you leave the edges of your field. Make sure you don't 
Make sure you don't harvest those because you need to leave some margin to make sure you help some other people who are less fortunate. So leave the margins out there so you can then bless people. And so that's what this whole next six weeks is about. It's like, how do I bless people? I've been blessed. How do I bless some other people? So there's going to be some organized stuff. There are going to be some organized things, as I said earlier. Some are organized. We're growing in this. We want to be a group of people who understand we gather together on a weekend, but then we are mobilized to then go out and demonstrate the gospel in our communities. So there's some that are very, very organized. Uh, one of them is, how do you bless a child? I mentioned a few weeks ago that there are a 1,000 elementary school children that are, as best we can tell, the highest needs, most underprivileged 1,000 kids that we can identify with the help of some of our friends in the school system. In Macon County and in Henderson County and in Buncombe County. And on November the 24th, we're going to go and bless them with a lot of stuff. Here's some of the stuff we're going to bless them with. Okay, we're going to bless them. And by the way, our friends at Walmart help us do this for $150 a child. Otherwise, it costs a lot more. A winter jacket, a sweatshirt, sweatpants, hat, boots, gloves, helmet, gift card. And then a, and also, I love this. I don't know. A razor scooter. I mean, that's awesome, right? A ra- you're like, we shouldn't give them a razor scooter. Who? You want, love them as yourself. If you're an elementary school kid, do you not want a razor scooter? All right, let me ask you that again. If you're an elementary school kid, do you not want a razor scooter? Yes, yes you do. We're going to give them a razor scooter. Now, there's a lot of stuff that's already planned. There's a lot of stuff you all do on a yearly basis from the million plus dollars to compassion to the million plus to church planning and some of our partners around here and all this kind of stuff. This is not in our budget. Here's my confidence. I'm saying this, you might, I might look bad in six weeks. I don't think so. This, isn't in our, this is not in our budget. It's $150,000 that is not going to be done by one person. Actually, it wouldn't even be good if one person does it. But for $150, I'll tell you right now, the Frank family is going to sponsor at least one. Some of us need to sit there and go, you know what? I can bless a child. I can, you know, 300 of these very well are homeless, living in a car with mom. 150, you can go to the, there's a bunch of stuff coming up. Fall festival, all this kind of stuff. First responders, we want to bless them in a particular way. But this one's the one that's at least close to the moderate. You've got 1,000 children. They might not have jack. They might not have anything. What they are going to have is they're going to have at least a church that visibly, tangibly says love does something. We love you and we prove it. Just like Jesus proved it for us, we're going to prove it to you. Here's at least a start to get through the winter. Now, from that, there's going to be some relationships that start. I'd say, parents, one of the best things you can do is get along with a little junior all right, look, get a little scooter around the table or scooter S or whoever, you've got a daughter or whatever, and say, I tell you what, we're going to go to backslash love or we're going to uh, text the word bless to 28282. And what we're going to do is we're going to bless. We might not even be able to meet him or her. We're going to bless a child. We're going to bless a child. All right, some of us can do 10. All right, if you want to do the whole thing. I said it wasn't good if somebody does the whole thing, but we'll figure something out if you do. All right, so here uh, it, we'll, we'll bless a child. So let me give you one last one and we'll close. Uh, a lot of this is organic too. A lot of this is organic. Here's the picture I want to leave you with. All right. Let's picture your house as this house in the middle. Over the next six weeks, I want you to just think about your physical neighbors too. Now, some of you live in an apartment. Some of you live in a duplex. Some of you live on five acres in Horseshoe. Some of you live in whatever. Just, just think, of your, think of your five or six neighbors, physical neighbors I just want to challenge you to do a couple things. Number one, how many of these people could you actually, could you put the name of your neighbors in that box? If you can't, hey, no shame. Over the next six weeks, though, we want to figure out if you've got to cheat and look at the HOA directory, whatever you've got to do, that's fine. But at least the first name is like, you know what, this is, this is Jimmy, this is Leslie, and this is Johnny, this is Scooter over here, whatever it is. You know their name. So get their name down. Pray for them by name. Spend some time over the next six weeks. God, I want to pray for, I want to pray for Jimmy. And then what I want, we'll give you some ideas about what are some things we can do. It doesn't mean that you go up, knock on their door, and then just preach at them. It means, though, that at some point in the next six weeks, just do something to step toward them instead of pass by them. I mean, that's why we're thanking God. The Bible's not like God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that he passed by on the other side. It's not, 
Same way as people. It's like, give me something. Some of you, it's going to be fun. Some of you are like extroverts, like throw a party. I'm not, I'm, throw a party. You're like, that's in the Bible. Luke 14, it's actually in the Bible. Now, I'll throw a God-honoring party, all right? Not some of those ones that get you in the newspaper, all right? So just let me throw a God-honoring party. Others of you always ask this when we come up to holiday time. When we come up to the Thanksgiving, in particular the Christmas holidays, should I go to my neighborhood party? Should I go to my neighborhood party? There might be alcohol there. Should I go to? Yes, you should, okay? Yes, you should. You're not going to get cooties from Coors Light, all right? That's not going to happen. You go to them. Now, listen, don't be that guy. Don't get sloshed there and embarrass us all, all right? But you can go to that party. You go to the party, all right? I mean, thank God. Again, you're not going to. Unclean, unclean. That's not it. Right? You love them. You love them. <laughs> I'm so sure I'm going to get some funny emails. That's going to be awesome. All right. So uh, let me just, let me close this. Why we do it? Why, why is this all done? But what you got to get down is, what you got to get down is the story of the Good Samaritan. Yes, it is about, it is about obviously loving your neighbor. That is, the, but, the, but the deeper point, the bigger point in many ways, I mean, because he could have put it a bunch of different ways. He could have made the Jew a guy that came along and helped another Jew, and then he could have said, but no. And so, so, so go be a good Jew and help people. That's not what he did. He intentionally used a character that there was enmity with, there was distance from. The whole picture is the idea that bottom line is we're the one in the street. We're the one that had been beaten. We're the one that was laying not just half dead, but Ephesians 2 says fully dead. It says we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And then God came into a very dangerous neighborhood. Our neighborhood took our sin, bound us up in the person of the Holy Spirit, and then set us off in a new life. And it didn't cost him two weeks, all right? It cost him his life. And because of that, because Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan, we want to love God deeply and then ask God because of that grace to transform us individually as a church, transform us greatly.